0: You're about to hear a preview of Partially Examined Life supporter exclusive content. To learn how to get the whole thing, check out partially slash support. This is episode two hundred and ninety-five, part three, still covering Emmanuel Kant's Perpetual Peace. We are starting on the appendices.
1: The first appendix is about the disagreement between morals and politics in relation to perpetual peace, which on first reading sounds like a really odd thing for him to be thinking about and and talking about what is it about politics and morality that in particular are in opposition, but really what he's thinking about is he's thinking about pragmatic political hypothetical thinking, hypothetical reasoning, real politic, thinking about things in practical terms, and you know I have such and such a goal I want to accomplish, and here's how I get there, and it could be even a utilitarian goal for the sake of you know the good of society, but it could also be more nefarious political goals, the self-interest of political actors. And morality has to do with Kantian obligation, what it is that we ought know that we ought to do a priori. So the question is, when do those things conflict? And, you know, he kind of started this whole thing by alluding to this, the idea that, well, you know, a lot of people say, this goes to his theory and practice essay as well, right? A lot of people say, well, you know, this pie in the sky morality, that's not really practically implementable. We have to be real, if we're going to do politics, this is a dangerous world and all that stuff. So, you know, you go be a philosopher, do that, but don't bother me with that unrealistic, naive stuff. He's going to say, no, we have to privilege morality, and that has a lot to do with privileging the concept of right.
2: I mean, in fact, he articulates, it's kind of almost a Machiavellian articulation of the principles, the, the, the sophistries of the person who decides to ignore the idea of reason in this way. The other thing he brings up
1: is there's an irony to people's real politic. It's often more naive than just being ethical because we know what's ethical. We know that actually better than anything else, but we can't predict the future. And we might say, well, you know, here I'm going to be a Machiavellian. I'm going to think with a cold, hard realism about what it is I should do to get a certain result and do it. But really, results are really unpredictable. The world is really unpredictable. And we're often deceiving ourselves when we go into that Machiavelli mode, he says. So we're bound to get a better result if we do what we know is right. And as he's argued before, that there are certain kind of invisible hand upshots of that anyway. So, you know, circumstantially, we're not going to necessarily be happy if we do the right thing, but it could be the case if there's nothing thwarting that, that that'll be the natural tendency and nature will in general work us towards the position of peacefulness for for reasons we've already talked about in the last podcast.
0: So it sounds like this is just a version of what we had heard about Kant about lying, for instance, that it seems like you should, real, real politician. Is that a good (laughs) term? I don't know. The real politico is saying, if I just stand back and obey my principles, then the bad guys are just going to stomp all over us. So it's the same thing, the Nazi at the door example. Like if, no, you need to lie to the bad people. You need to thwart their aims. You need to do whatever you need to do to keep the bad people. If everybody was behaving right, then absolutely we should live in the kingdom of ends and treat everybody As an end in themselves and just do the right thing in all circumstances. But given that we live in a corrupt and fallen world, then we don't have that luxury. We, you know, at the best, we could use these moral principles as regulative, you know, as guiding lights, as something to strive for, as ideals. You know, you could have all the people who make Jesus their central idea but feel like we live in such a world of sin that no, we actually have to more of beating down the sinners must dominate our everyday characters as opposed to just being some bleeding heart.
1: I think it's related. I mean, it's um, he invokes what he calls the practical man who repudiates, right? The well-intentioned hopes of the person who's advocating that we approach things ethically. And that person wants us to adhere to the quote unquote empirical principles of human nature, which is corrupt. Human nature is corrupt. Let's be real. And so on that view, peace can only be imposed by force. On that kind of view, it seems not practical, this whole peace idea. But Kant's going to say, you know, actually, morality and politics can be consistent with one another if you believe that there's a possibility of human freedom, if you believe that we are not just corrupt
2: products of natural forces. I just was going to underline the human freedom part, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to is the possibility of human freedom requires that you make people ends in themselves, right? Kind of just being consistent, I think, with what he's been doing before. I mean, what he's going to
1: say is that what stands in the way of perpetual peace is the fact that we put the ends before the means. We make our principles subordinate to our ends. And so, in a way, we defeat, right, this ultimate end of perpetual peace. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you behave cynically instead of behaving according to the concept of right and with a focus
2: and a privileging of human rights. On 123, he, at the top of it, you know, underlines this sort of uh, invisible hand argument regarding by following the morality, you will actually get the end that you want. So, he says, for morality with regard to its principles of public right, hence in relation to a political code which can be known a priori, has a, the peculiar feature that the less it makes its conduct depend upon the end it envisages, whether this be a physical or moral advantage, the more it will general, in general harmonize with this end. And the reason for this is that it is precisely the general will as it is given a priori within a single people or in the mutual relationships of various peoples which alone determines what is right among men. But this union of the will of all, if only it is put into practice in a consistent way, can also, within the mechanism of nature, be the cause which leads to the intended result and gives the effect of the concept of right. So it's basically a version of doing virtuous things makes you virtuous. And so having laws and having the politics behave morally will then cultivate a general will that will then make
3: right the foundation of society and therefore cultivate the freedom of man but isn't it also the concern here this notion of the political moralist as opposed to the moral politician he doesn't think you can begin with legislation in some way there has to be an appropriate amount of will in the in the assembled group of individuals to enact a republican state it's not as though you could have the mass of people not agreeing with the appropriate principle of morality around human freedom, and then have somebody who was the legislator try to legislate that into existence. In fact, that probably wouldn't even happen. There's a certain recognition of this human freedom and the desire to strive towards it that needs to drive political action to get to the point that you just described, Dylan.
2: I agree, but I I thought that part of what I just read Was in line with the notion that making laws that are aligned with moral behavior will then cultivate general will and cultivate directions that are more
3: aligned with the ends that are desired rather than using whatever means to get to those ends. I don't disagree with that. What I'm trying to understand here is in that same section, he says... Political moralists, on the other hand, do not deserve a hearing, however much they argue about the natural mechanism of a mass of people who enter in society or claim that this mechanism would invalidate the above principles. They put man into the same class as other living machines, right? I guess what I'm trying to understand is, part of this section is he's trying to argue for the priority of morality over politics. Which is to say, the priority of the just over the
1: good. So, in particular, freedom and human rights but freedom in particular, over our utopianism and the concept of a perfect society. The political moralist says, look, this is the way human beings are, but if we want a good society, we're going to have to crack the whip and do things, that violate individual human rights, but that'll give us the best possible result at a societal level. And the political moralist is worried that if you say, just say, okay, you have your freedoms, you have your rights, everything is going to fall apart. That's part of what's going on. This is all about that conflict between the Rawlsian and Sandelian conception, or not even Sandelian conception, but Sandel's one is one formulation of an objection to the concept that the right is prior to the good. But other, you know, the more apt rejection of it is despotic forms of socialism, or communism, authoritarian regimes, which. It may be more or less cynical, right? But often have kind of utopian ideals that they're working toward at a general level. So they haven't abandoned quote unquote morality, right? That's why you can call them political moralists. They are supposed to be wise to the ways of the world and the corruption of human nature. So why would you give these corrupt human beings their freedoms and let society go to shit because of that?
0: If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.